Thank you, Andy. Uh, and thank you to the worship band. That, uh, that last song, man, that was, that was something else. Um, there's, a, there's a story that I like to tell. It's, a, it's about a painter and uh, his son. And the um, only son of this, of this man, he's a very famous painter. And one of the things they, they uh, just enjoyed doing was, was drawing and painting and uh, just growing up. I mean, that was like, that was like what they did. That's kind of how they bonded. And uh, that's really what defined them, um, their love for expressing themselves through, through art and through painting. And um, they lived during the time of World War II. And the boy uh, grew up. He was 18. And war broke out. And uh, he was drafted to, to go to war. And uh, and he died, and the the man, the father, was, as you can imagine, broken. Um, this is his only son. I mean, they they shared this this strong affinity for painting. I mean, this was it was it was heartbreaking. It was heart wrenching, and he was a shell of himself for many years. And then one day, several years after the war was over, he gets a knock on his door, and uh, he opens it, and there's a young soldier there, and uh, the. The soldier says, "Sir, uh, you don't you don't know me, um, but I knew your son, and uh, and I you know I always wanted to learn how to draw, and I always wanted to learn how to how to paint, and man, we when we were in boot camp, and when we were in the foxholes, and w anytime there was a there was a, a lull in the action, uh, me and your son, man, he, he would he would teach me, and uh, he'd teach me how to draw." And and um, man, one day there was this fierce battle, and uh, we were out there together, and we we're watching each other's flanks, and we we're just we we're just engaged in this fierce struggle. And your son, he he saw the gun before I did, and uh, it was pointing at me, and and he and he and he and he dove in front of it, and he and he took a bullet that was meant for me, and uh, and, he, and your sir, your son died for me, and. Uh, the, the young soldier says, you know, I, I always imagined that I would come this day and I, and I, I would track you down, I would find you. And I, and I always wanted to, I was like, man, I, I just, just want to do something to express how much your son meant to me. I mean, I, mean, I loved your son. And so, sir, he rolls out this piece of paper. He's like, sir, this, this, is, this is amateurish to say the least, but but I, I just wanted to draw a picture of your son, and uh, I wanted to give it to you. And so the, the, the father, he, he, he takes the, the, the little drawing that the soldier made of his son, and, you know, it's, it's amateurish to say the least, but it so warmed his heart that he took that, that drawing, and he went into his, his gallery in his house where he kept all of his most precious and prized and and, and, and just his, his most prized paintings that he had, had done over the course of his life. And, and in the pinnacle position on that wall, he made a space. And, and in that place, he put the picture that this young soldier made of his son. Well, many years pass, and the father finally dies. And there is a buzz around the art community all around the world because now these famous paintings that he had held to himself to enjoy for himself, they were now going to be auctioned off, and so people from all around the world came to his estate, and they gathered in, in his, in his uh, room, in his house, where all of his arts were once displayed, and there was going to be an auction, and they were going to be able to bid on the work of this, 
great painter. And, uh, and so the auctioneer comes uh, forward onto the stage, and, and they have a little podium for him there. And he takes his little gavel. There, there's just excitement. It's just buzzing. Everybody's just, man, this, this is it. Man, this is it. And uh, he, he slams down his gavel, and the, there's a hush in the room. And uh, he says, we're going to begin. Thank you all for coming. And he says, the first art piece that we're going to bid on is, is this one over here. And there's, there's an easel on the, on the stage, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a cloth over the easel. And one of the assistants comes over, and he, he grabs the cloth, and he lifts it up. And he displays to the waiting uh, bidders the first piece of art that they're going to bid on to get the auction started. And it was a picture of the sun that the young soldier had drew. And uh, if you can imagine being in that room in that moment, perhaps you would say, I did not come across the ocean, or I did not fly here from a distant far off place to bid on this nonsense. What is this, what is this that you are saying? This, is, this isn't from the, the, from the famous painter, surely. This is done by some amateur. Let's get this thing off the stage and let's move on with the, the, the show. We've come here to bid on the great work of this man, not this nonsense. And the crowd was just buzzing with that kind of irate, like, what is this? Is this some kind of joke? And in the back of the room, just so happened that the young soldier uh, had decided to attend. And he's listening to this. He's saying, man, man, it, if they knew about that person, if they knew who that was, if they, if they knew all the things that I know about him, man, they would not be talking like this. No, no, they would not be talking like this. And, and this is all this emotion is just welling up inside him. And he, and he finally, he says, enough. And he, so he stands up and he says, sir. And the auctioneer says, silence. We have a bidder. He says, sir, man, I, don't, I only got a few pounds in my pocket. I, mean, I don't have very much money, but I'll give you everything that I have. But just please, just, just let me take that home with me. Please don't destroy it. Just let me take it home, and then you guys can just get on with the show. So the auctioneer, he, he, he looks around, and he says, is there any other bids? And, uh, of course, there isn't. And so he takes the gavel, and he slams it down, and he says, sold to the young soldier in the back. And so now everybody's like, okay, finally, we can get on with the show. And so he calls his assistant back up, and he says, come back up, assistant. And the assistant comes up, and he has a scroll in his hand, and, and he sets it down on his, on, his, uh, on his area here, and he unrolls, and he says, this is the first will, this is the, this is the will and testament of the famous painter that I was asked to read upon the sale of this first piece. So he unrolls and he says, this is the will. This, the, the painter says this, the one who gets my son gets it all. The one who takes my son gets all of my treasures, gets everything. And I start with that story this morning because in our parable, Jesus Christ is saying this to us, the one who gets the kingdom of heaven gets everything. He gets everything. It's worth everything. Here we have a pearl merchant. And you've got to understand that pearl merchants, man, they were searching for the most precious thing in their, in, their, in their economy back then, the pearl. It was the most precious thing. Here you have a man, he's searching and he's searching. He's searching for the very finest and the very best. And he's, he's, he's dedicating his life to this thing. He's looking for pearls. And if you were to see him one day, if he were to come to your town, and you're just like, sir, what are you all about? What, what are you doing here? He would tell you, man, I'm looking for pearls. Do you have any? I mean, he, I mean, he was looking for pearls. 
He wasn't, he wasn't looking for cattle or, or corn or, or something like that. No, no, no. He was looking for the very finest and best. And, and Jesus is, is, he uses his illustration to describe the value of the kingdom. And he says, he says that one day, this pearl merchant, he comes across a, a pearl that is so valuable, that is so precious. It instantly, he, he, he evaluates it. He's like, this is, this is so much worth so much more than anything that I have and anything that I've found. And he does the only prudent thing that, that somebody would do when faced with that, that opportunity. He goes and he, and, he, and he sells everything. He sells all those lesser pearls that he'd collected over the course of his life that he might have this one, this one pearl of great price. And that's the story. That's what he gives us. He says the kingdom of heaven is like this. And so I was, as I was thinking about that, I was like, okay, well, like, like, like intellectually, I kind of, I get that, right? I mean, I get that it's, it, it, intellectually, it's valuable. Like this offer, citizenship into the kingdom of heaven, like this offer is valuable. We see all this, all the chaos in our world, and we see all the pain and all the suffering, and we have this, 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 this invitation to, to enter into this life, and we're like, wow, that's amazing. That seems so valuable and precious, but, but why is it sometimes not so valuable to us? Why is it sometimes not so precious to us? And so that's, uh, as I was thinking about, God, what would you have us talk about and unpack together as we, as we kind of dive into this, this idea of the value of this offer, the, this pearl, this entry into the kingdom of heaven, the value of this offer? Like, what would you have us do with this? And I got to think about, man, we know people, right, that in our lives that are just really high-functioning people. And, and, and so I was like, okay, pearls, okay, you're looking for good things. So I, got, I go to this gym in, here in town, it's, it's, a, it's a CrossFit gym, and there's some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, Why, smartest people, most committed to their physical, most committed to being physically healthy, most committed to, to wanting to live in community and, 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 and help one another, seeing the value of that. Uh, just doing work that's just so meaningful, doctors and scientists and all the rest. Like I'm surrounded with these people when I go to my gym and I, I begin to think about them and, and what they're doing, they're collecting good pearls. I mean, these are good things. I mean, wanting to, to become better people, searching out ways to, to eat healthier, searching out ways to, to live in community in, in a more robust and, 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 and comprehensive ways. I mean, these are great things. They're looking for good pearls. And I feel like we know people like that, and, and maybe we're kind of like that too. Like, we're searching for good things. We're searching for good things. And if I were to gather that group of people up from my gym, and I would say, guys, I, and I almost wanted to do this, actually. I'm like, guys. And I've, I've talked to one of them about this, and Andy was there. We, I talked to one of, the, one of the guys, and I was going to tell him I was going to do this. I was like, guys, I have, you, you're looking for good pearls. You're looking for good pearls, right? You guys are here every day. I mean, you're, you're trying to eat healthy. I mean, you're, you're, you're doing all these things. You're, you're like searching out for the very finest and best in life. You're, like, you're looking for good pearls. And guys, so I know that you would be very interested in this thing that I found, this pearl, if you will, of great price. And so I gather them together, and I, and I tell them, I'm, I got this pearl. I know you're going to be interested because you're interested in finding good pearls. And they say, okay. They say, that sounds great. They're like, how much does it cost? And I say, all right. How much does it, yeah, how much does it cost? I mean, for this pearl merchant, he sold all of his pearls. Whoa, what, are we, what, what, what was the cost? Well, just a couple things here that I wrote down. What will it cost? Well, it'll cost your, your strength of character. 
You think that you're a, a moral person, an upright person amongst your peers in your community. The Bible says that no one is good. No, not even one. No one seeks for God. No one understands. Everybody has become worthless because of their pursuit of self and their own glory. No one does good. So you're going to have to sell off that. You're going to have to sell off your knowledge. Jesus says if you're going to come and inherit this, this pearl, this kingdom, man, you've got to have the faith of a child. You think you know this world and what it's all about. You think you've, you've, you've kind of figured it out, or at least you have some worldview that, that kind of helps you to make sense of how things are and why they're broken. And you think you've figured this out. Man, the Bible says, no, you haven't. You've got to come as a child. You're going to have to sell off your knowledge. Your knowledge is going to keep you from, from, from obtaining this. You're going to have to sell off your earthly pleasure. All those things, those good things that become masters in your life, those things that, that they, 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 on the surface, are like, these are good things, man. You're, you're like trying to exercise. You're trying to eat well. You're trying to, you're trying to but no, what, 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 what's happening is they're fashioning for yourself idols. And if somebody were to come by and take that away from you, you'd become angry. You'd become depressed. You would reach out in, 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 in unhealthy ways to obtain it back. You're going to have to sell off your earthly pleasures. You're going to have to sell off your reputation. And the Bible says you will be hated by all because of Jesus' name. But it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. Man, this is not some kind of like club where everybody wants to be a part of this thing. No, no, no. You're going to be hated. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to have to sell off your reputation. Your reputation is, is, is going to have to go because Jesus is more important, and he replaces that with, with something else. And Jesus says, these are just four things. I mean, there's, there's a, you can, we can have sermon series about all the things that this call to, to sell off all these things in our lives. It, these are just small little things, but they're huge, big things. And Jesus says that everything is worth this pearl. And so what I want to do is, I, as I was thinking about that, I was like, uh, okay, so how do, we, how do we, like, that sounds great and all, but like, how do we make it a reality in our lives where we see the value of that pearl as being truly, supremely precious? For the believer and for the one who's outside of the, outside of the, of the kingdom, but looking in and, and, and searching, searching for good pearls. I think there's two things. I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a knowledge th aspect to this that needs to happen. We need to understand things like the price that was paid that we might have entry. We need to understand things like the, the, who it was that, that was the one that made the, the ultimate sacrifice that we might be saved. We need to understand those things. There's a knowledge piece that's crucial. And we talk about that all the time here, but there's also an experiential piece, an experiential piece that begins to grow in our hearts as we, as we, walk down this path of understanding the value of what Jesus is offering to us, this pearl of great price. And what I want to do this morning is I want to focus a little bit about on the experiential. Now, my wife is here, Chelsea, and, and uh, man, if I were to tell you I knew my wife, I, I loved my wife before I knew her. I mean, I was just like infatuated with her, and we have some people in here, maybe they can relate. They're thinking about that, about their future wives or husbands. They don't know them, but uh, they, they already love them. Uh, if I were to tell you that, though, I mean, you're like, no, you don't, you don't, you don't know the person. I mean, how, how do you, how do you love her? You don't even know her. I'm like, yeah, okay. But man, once I met her, once I, once I saw her, once I started interacting with her, once I started living life with her, eleven years later, man, my knowledge of her, coupled with my experience of her excellencies, of her beauty, 
of her kindness that has cultivated in me a sense of value and love and appreciation for her. It's the same thing with God. So how do we do that? It seems to be easy to be able to do that with a husband or a wife or a best friend or, or a father and a, and a son or a mother and a daughter. But how do we do that with God? And I think that we got this great example that's often overlooked in the scriptures that kind of brings that experiential aspect of the Christian faith out. And it's found... And in a seemingly obscure book of the Bible, which I'd like for you to turn with me here in a second, the book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. It's about the middle of your Bible. If you flip your Bible open and, and, you, and you're, you're in Psalms, go right. If you're in Isaiah, go left. You'll find it. Look in your, look in your table of contents. It's nestled there, almost in the, in smack dab in the middle. And in the book of Song of Solomon, God has given us a, a love song of sorts, of a husband, of his wife. But intermingled in this love song are amazing pictures of God's love for his people. And I think if we can explore that, the nature of that love as drawn out in some of these verses in this love song, that our estimation of the value of the pearl of great price will grow. And in so doing, the people around us in the sphere of influence that God has given us will begin to see the implications of that love for God grow, and it will be something that is attractive and appealing to the world. So let's look at this together. Song of Solomon chapter 4 is where we're going to be. And uh, <coughs> we're going to follow this love story. Um, and uh, we're going to start at verse 7. And here we have the, the bridegroom speaking to his bride, to his beloved. God speaking to his church. God speaking to you as an individual. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. And there is no flaw in you. You are all together beautiful. Would you just, just think about that. Here we have God. Like, like you're like, but, but, but I know myself. No, here we have God. He's saying you're all together beautiful. There is no blemish. And you say, oh, how can that be? And we know, we know our knowledge tells us it's because of the blood of Jesus. We know, we know because, the, because Jesus hung on a tree and endured the wrath of Almighty God, that Jesus became a curse, that he became the scapegoat, that he became the worm. He did all this that we might be considered by God to be without flaw, without blemish. So intellectually, we, we can understand that. We can, we can look back in the gospel, and we know the story, and we know, we know the theology. But I want us to look at this from an experiential, a relational sense. He's saying, you are all together beautiful. Like, he's saying that to you. And he's saying that to me. And our hearts, we, our hearts want to explode and say, no, I can't believe that. I know my sin. I know all my blemishes. But the testimony of Scripture is such that God says, because of the blood of Jesus, you are all together beautiful. You are all together beautiful. And there is no flaw in you. Our feelings of unworthiness are such, and I, I struggle with this. This is the, one of the main struggles that I have. It is an exercise of faith for the Christian to look into the mirror of God's law, 
to look into the mirror and, and see all their blemishes, to see all their faults, all their stains, all their sins, and, to, and to, to cling to the promise that says that he loves us nonetheless. That his, his love is constant. That his love is secure. It doesn't waver. This is the nature of the love that God has for you. And sometimes I like to think, man, that he's just talking about the church. No, he's not just talking about the church. He's talking about you as an individual. Me as an individual. He's saying there is no blemish in you. That you are altogether beautiful. We are not merely just tolerated by God. When you take hold of this pearl, when you say all that's behind me is gone, when you burn all those bridges, no turning back, when you take hold of that pearl, it's not as though he just tolerates you. You're, 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 you're saved by the blood, you're covered by the blood. Because of Christ, I've got to tolerate them, but they're saved. Because of Christ, I've got to love them. No, that's not how it is. You're not just tolerated by God. The Bible says that God takes delight in his people. That he crowns the humble with salvation. The Bible says that we should sing for joy on our beds because of that great truth. That God says to you this morning, you are altogether beautiful, my love. Because of my son, because of his righteousness and what he did on your behalf on that tree, and that he rose three days later and conquered death, I can say that there is no flaw in you. There isn't. He goes on, verse 8, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. God is always calling us to come. Always. And the devil is always saying to us, you can not come. This world is saying to us, you can't, I mean, you just, you just did it again. Are we really? You, you just, the same sin over and over again? I mean, and, and you think you can just go right back to him? I mean, I mean, that's cheap, isn't it? I mean, you got to. At, at, at a minimum, you got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, dust yourself off. I mean, at least you got to have a string a couple days together where you're not, you're not doing the same stupid things over and over again, thinking the same false thoughts or acting the same bad ways or, or feeling the same feelings that are, that are so harmful. Like, before you come, I mean, you can't just come. But Jesus says, he says, come away with me. He says, come down. He says, he says, settle down. He says, quiet down. Come away with me. There's a beautiful truth in this, guys, that our Lord and Savior is always and forever beckoning us to come. To come. Look what he says. Come down from those dens of lions, from those mountains of leopards. He's saying, he's saying, come away from those dangerous places. For some of us here tonight or this morning, it's it's, it's it come away from that from that computer screen, or come away from that relationship, or come down from from that hobby that's become that's become something more than just a hobby. 
or come down from those things that are producing in you apathy or disinterest in the things of God or come down from those things. Come down from those dangerous places, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. He's always beckoning us to come. And the crazy thing about this is this is not like Esther, who was afraid. She desperately wanted to have an audience with the king, but she was afraid because if the king did not extend his scepter to her, she would die. If the king did not accept her in his presence, she would die. That's not how this is. Our God, our king, always accepts our presence. The scepter is always extended to his people. He says, come away. He says, come, come. He wakes you up in the middle of the night. He says, he says spend a night watch with me. You're on a mountain bike or you're running. Or he, says, he says, he comes. He says, he says, come. He says, slip away with me. Terry with me. You're at the coffee shop. You're studying. He places he place a, a thought in your mind. He's, he says, he says he's just, just, just stop that for a second. Just, just be with me for a second. Come away with me. Man, you're, you're, you're about to go back to that computer screen. The, the, the house is quiet. <laughs> and, and you're about to go back to the p- computer screen. He said, no. He's, he said, no, no, no. Come. He said, he says, come away with me. Be in my presence. Terry, a moment with me. Our God is always calling us to come. He's always beckoning us to come. He goes on. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. Man, this, this, again, this speaks back to the reality that God delights in his people. and He does not merely tolerate us. When we enter into prayer and we enter into the quiet place and we're alone with him, his heart beats faster, the Bible says. It captivates his heart. How can that be? How can that be? I mean, think about your, if you're married here this morning. Man, well, my wife, I mean, when, I, when we first met her, it's like one glance. I mean, one glance, and she looks at, I mean, that's, uh, my heart was just like, man, that girl. You know what I'm saying? I mean, one glance. Her attention, her presence was so precious, and it is still today, but it was so precious. It's that same idea that God's heart is captivated with one glance of our eye. You say, Josh, that's a, that's cool and all, but man, you don't know what I've done. I mean, this week, I mean, <laughs> there's no way his heart's beating faster. There's no way his heart's being captivated by my attention. You don't know what I've done. And I think this speaks to this, this reality I've been struggling with this recently is this idea of unconditional love. We don't know what that is because we don't see unconditional love demonstrated anywhere in this world. The unconditional love of God. Let me give you an illustration. My daughter, she's, she's sitting in this morning. She wanted to, to hear her dad speak. Wonderful, beautiful. She comes to me. She always wants to do art. She's a, she's a beautiful artist. She comes to me. She says, Dad, I'm having a good day. She says, Dad, I made an art for you. And I'm like, I look at it, and I'm smiling. And I'm like, boo, that's amazing. Thank you. And I'm giving her a hug. And 
and I'm just loving on her, and I'm, my heart is so filled with love and joy, and, I'm, and she sees that, and she's like, yes, this is love, and she can't articulate that, but she's, she's six, and she, but she knows, like inside, yes, this is love. This is the way it's supposed to be. Man, the next day, it's, it's a busy day. I'm stressed. Man, I've done some stuff. I've yelled at my kids in the morning or whatever it is. I'm brewing over some stuff that I've done, and I'm angry, and I'm stressed, and I'm just, and she comes to me. She's got another painting, another drawing. She says, Dad. And I look at it, and I don't even barely give it one second of, of my attention. I'm like, boo, I'm busy right now. Come back later. And here she is. She, she doesn't understand. She doesn't know. She's like, that's not how love's supposed to be, is it? Or maybe it is. Maybe love is a fickle thing. Maybe some days it's really strong, and, but other days it's, it's not, and... And she's just processing through it, and, she, and, and we all are, are raised in this. Nobody's perfect, and so we just begin to develop this concept of love that it's full of conditions, that it's capricious, that it's, it, it's here today and gone tomorrow potentially, and, and there's this insecurity that we have that all revolves around this idea of love and acceptance. But God is not like that, and praise God that he's not like that. Praise God that he's a good father, unlike myself. He's a good father who's consistent, who always responds favorably to the presence of his people, of his children. Now notice something here. He says, one glance of your eyes, and then he says, one jewel of your necklace. Now where did she get that necklace? Or better put, who did she get that necklace from? She got that necklace from her, from her beloved. He clothed her with something beautiful. Isn't that amazing? And there's so many times I'll go to a wedding and I always tell Chelsea, I don't really want to get dressed up. And she says, well, okay, you're going you're gonna to feel kind of weird. And I'm like, nah, it'll be all right. Nobody cares, especially branch weddings. Nobody cares. It's all good. <laughs> you know, we're all casual in sandals sometimes. She's like, all right. And so most of the time she talks me out of it, and I, I wisen up and I get dressed up. But uh, uh, recently, I don't remember whose wedding it was. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say. Maybe uh, if somebody's wedding recently, and I didn't, I was like, I'm just gonna do it. It's all good. Man, I felt. I started looking around. I saw Josh. You know, Josh in his nice tie, and he's like, oh, of course he's got to be in a tie because he's officiating the wedding, probably. Davey, all around, everybody's looking good. Man, here I am is just like jeans and a, and, a, and a button up, not even tucked in. I'm like, man, I feel like a schmuck. I felt bad. I felt like I didn't belong. I was not clothed appropriately, not befitting a wedding of somebody who I loved and appreciated by any means. But here we have the father. Here we have this, the bride and the groom, and the groom is dressing her in, 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 in jewels, in, in, in an outfit that is worthy of attendance to a wedding that will one day happen where all the saints will gather together and they will gather around that throne and the lamb who was slain will be presented to his bride and we will be dressed 
appropriately in white linens. The linens that belonged only to the Son, the one who only ever did what was pleasing to the Father, consistent in his love for his Father and for his Father's glory, we will be clothed in his robes and (laughs) we will be dressed appropriately for that wedding. There will be no shame. There will be no shrinking back like I don't belong here because our, our bridegroom will ensure that we are clothed. He will ensure that we are, that we are sufficiently clothed. It goes on, verse, uh, chapter 5, let's jump to verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2. We're, there's so much here that I wish that we could just go over. I mean, we could spend a, a, a but we have to, for the sake of time, chapter 5, verse 2 says this, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have put on my garment. I put off my garment. How could I put it back on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? You come. It's the middle of the night. The bridegroom has come to be with his bride, to be with his beloved. And what does she do? She shuns him. She says no. She says, God, I'm, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. It's been a long day. I can't, I can't. I just need to watch Netflix right now. I mean, I hear you. There's like that little thing inside me that says, come. We got like 15 minutes, come. Let's, let's just spend 15 minutes together before bed. But, but, but Lord, I'm just, I'm just too tired. And so what happens? She finally, she finally says, okay, she's aroused up and she, and she goes to the door. But what happens? I arose to open to my beloved my hands drip with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. There's a sense in which love can be hurt. Love can be grieved. It can be, it can be damaged. There's so many reasons that, I, that, that, that we can come up with for, for not responding to the invitation to come, to, to slip away, to, to be alone with God, to to, to tarry in his presence, there's, there's the, the you know, I'm just too tired. Some of us are just too busy. We just are too busy. We plan too many things. We try to do too much. And oftentimes it's good stuff. We want to meet with people. We want to love on people. We want to serve people. But we, we fill ourselves up with too much stuff. And so over time, after many months and maybe years of this, our love for God becomes common, becomes mundane. And what, what started at conversion with this swelling of value and esteem for this pearl has started to become, this pearl is just a, it's just, I mean, it's, you know, I'm a Christian, you know, I'm, but it loses its, its value in our hearts. We stop hearing that call 
to come. To, to, to come away. And so prayer life becomes a drudgery. Man, we have to feel like we're always picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, putting our boots on to go pray because it feels like when we pray, there's just like an iron ceiling over our heads. I mean, it's just the intimacy. I mean, the, the affection, the passion. I mean, we lack it. We venture further down into dens of lions and mountains of leopards. I mean, that still small voice that's beckoning us always to come. It begins to lose its draw, its appeal. The pearl is no longer seen as supremely valuable. And that's what's happening here with, with, this, with this woman. And, and th- that's what happens with so many. And maybe you're there right now in this morning. That's where you're at in your life. You're like, so what happens? Well, let's read on. Verse 6. Second half of verse 6. My soul failed. I s- my soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Verse 7. The watchmen found me. As they went about the city, they beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. Man, if she was with her beloved... He had beckoned her that night if they decided to take a stroll through the city together. You think those watchmen are going to abuse her? No. (laughs) Man, those watchmen wouldn't even deign to look at her in the eyes if her beloved was with her. Man, if we're walking with God, you think, you think these, these, the principalities of this world, man, we're walking with the king. She's walking with her beloved. That's not going to happen. But so often when we're not, we're going down dens of lions. We're going down mountains of lepers. We're, we're busy. We're filling our schedule up with too much stuff. We're, 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 we're not hearing the voice of God beckoning us to come. We're, we're trying to live off our own powers. And one thing leads to another. The love of God in our hearts becomes to, starts to become dull. We're exposed to the schemes of more so than ever of the evil one. beat us, bruise us. Goes on, verse 8. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. She finds some friends. She says, I adore you, O daughters of Jerusalem. If you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. Their response. What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjourn us to, to go look for him as well? It, this, is the re- this is the rebuke. She, she, he came to your door, they say. I mean, I mean he, he trekked throughout the night to come to your door, and he was right there. And he, and he, wanted, to, he wanted to commune with you, and, but you couldn't even be bothered to get up out of bed to open the door for him. Man, why should we go looking for that man? He doesn't seem very important to you. I mean, I mean, your, man, your career path, that seems more important than Jesus does. I mean, from what I've seen, man, you're real pumped about this, but I, I, I don't ever see pumped about Jesus. I mean, our, non, our, our, our friends that are around us, they see our lives. They, 
Like, man, you seem more 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 excited about your uh, your little adventures and, and your little Instagram and this and that than you do about the things of God. Why should I go follow him? Why should I seek after him? The, the rebuke. Man, a rebuke is a good thing. It wakes us up. And some of us need to be rebuked this morning. Man, we're filling up our schedule with all these things that God is calling us to come, to come away with him, to come away with him. And we're saying, no, Lord, I'm too busy. No, Lord, I'm too tired. No, Lord, I'm too preoccupied with these dens of lepers and these, these mountains of lepers, these dens of lions. I'm, I'm too preoccupied with these things, these hobbies and the, all the rest. And there's a rebuke. So what happens? Well, she goes on. Verse 10. There's revival. There's repentance. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a pool, a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivy bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and is, he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this, my friends, O daughters of Jerusalem. She's like, the rebuke happens, and, and, and then she, she, she repents, and she starts to see, she starts to remember, she starts to remember her first love. And it's like she's like wild. It's like, it's like wheels inside of wheels begin to turn, and she's just like, he's this, and he's this. And he's this, and he's this, and, and man, when I, was, when I was at my deepest point, and, and he, he came for me, and he, he nurtured me, or, or when I was like, when I was going off, and I was doing my own thing, he sent, he sent brothers and sisters in Christ to come and gather me back, or, or man, when I, when I was struggling with, with loving my daughter or my son the way I, I want to love him, he, he like spoke a word to me in, 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 in my private prayer time, and, and he filled me with joy. She's like, she's recalling all those instances, those relational instances where God the Father came and she experienced his presence. And she's like, this is, this is my beloved, oh daughters of Jerusalem. This is the one. This is that, the source of that pearl of great price. And look what, her, look what the friends say. Look what the friends say in chapter 6. Verse 1, where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Man, they're like, man, if he's like that. Now make no mistake. Man, you start talking, telling people about Jesus, you start living that life, and his love is raiding in front of you. Some people are going to respond favorably, but, but the vast majority are not. The Bible tells us that. But man, they're like, if that's how he is, if that's the nature of that pearl, if my friends at my gym, they're like, they see my life and they hear me talking about Jesus and they, it just comes out of me. They're like, man, there's something about that. And that is born out of a relationship. It's not strictly born out of my knowledge about the gospel, my knowledge about how this all works and theology and the rest. It's born out of a relationship with the son of man who comes to me and beckons me to come. And in those times of sweet communion with him, man, that's where all the work happens. 
That's where all the work happens. And so they, they go. Now, we're going to close with this. The disposition of the, of the, of the, of the husband. I mean, I mean, she's like goes out and searches for him. She, she gets abused. She, she first rejected him, and then she gets abused, and then she gets a rebuke from her friends, and, and then she, re- she repents, and she, re- she remembers all the things about her beloved. And her, her friends want to go search for her, for, with her. And I go, this whole time, I'm like, where's the, where's, the, where's the beloved at? I mean, is he, uh, is he out plotting schemes? He's like, man, I came throughout the whole night to knock on her door. Man, the only way that she's going to learn like, I can't just say, like, it's all forgiven, it's all good. I can't do that because conventional wisdom says I got, there's got to be some kind of a punishment, otherwise there's not going to be any lesson learned. Man, is he out scheming about that stuff? It's like, man, all right. I'll, she'll come to me eventually when she comes to her, to her, her wits about this whole thing, and she'll come to me, but, but, but I'm going to arm's length for at least a little while. Or maybe he's like, man, you know what, this is it. This, there's been too many times. There's been too many times where that person who is supposed to love me goes off and loves something else way more than they love me. Man, I gotta, I think I gotta write this person off. I don't think this is gonna work. Is that what he's doing? I mean, that's what the world would tell us, right? That's what we would do probably. Shunned by the one that's supposed to love us. <laughs> what is he doing? Well, Let's look. Verse 2, chapter 6. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. He's gone back to his garden. And he is collecting gifts for his beloved. For when she returns. And so he'll wait. And when she returns, he will present her with those gifts. That is the nature of the love of God for his people. When we come to God in repentance, we don't come before a judge. We come before a father. We come before a son who died for us. He is for you. Always run to him. Always return to him. Do not buy into the lies that say that you need to earn it or you need to set yourself in a penalty box for a certain amount of days or time before you can come back. Don't do that. He is always waiting for us to come. Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves you. And so this is the this is the experience. This is the this is the Christian life of of experiencing God, of falling away, of coming back and back and forth. And each time where experience grows and our and our love for him grows, and our esteem for the pearl grows. And the world will see, and God will be glorified. Because the world knows nothing about this. You have finally walked through a door the world knows nothing about, and it's called unconditional love. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for just the reminders that you give us in your word, Lord, that your love for us is constant and secure. 
that there is nothing that can get in its way. There's nothing, there's no power on this earth that can frustrate or thwart the love that you have for your people. And Father, I pray, Lord God, that we would have a renewed sense of passion and purpose to slip away and be alone with you. I pray that our, our posture of our hearts, if we need a radical transformation, Lord God, I pray that you'd give that to us, that we might, we might hear that still, small voice beckoning us to come, to experience you, to be alone with you, Lord God, that you might teach us of all the things that you'd have us learn, that you might fill us with passions for your glory, Lord God, amongst the nations, that you might fill us with love for our neighbors, that you might equip us to go out into this world and see all the sin, all the damage, all the problems, Lord God, and not lose hope and trust and know that you are in control and that you will make a name for yourself amongst the nations from the rising of the sun even to its setting, that your name will be great amongst the nations and that you have allowed us to play a small role in communicating the value of that great pearl, that pearl of great price, worthy of all lesser pearls. You've given us a chance to play a small role in communicating its value to this world. Increase its value in our hearts this morning, Lord God, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.